This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. It's Thursday, January 5th, 2023. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Camille Foster, filling in for the incomparable but still very much on vacation Mike Pesca. I'm scrolling through headlines today on all the major websites, as I generally do, just trying to get a sense of what's happening in the world. And as per usual, there is plenty of bad news on offer. Lots of political dysfunction, economic uncertainty, and various unpleasantnesses that are playing out both here and abroad. But today, the story that seems to be consuming the most real estate across all of the publications that I've taken a look at involves Republican Congressman Kevin McCarthy who finds himself at the center of an unusually protracted struggle to become the next Speaker of the House of Representatives. For several days now, McCarthy has been in a contentious fight with a handful of determined Republican hardliners. He's secured the support of former President Trump. He's made a number of concessions to his critics, but he's been embarrassingly thwarted, losing seven different floor votes to become Speaker. It's anyone's guess how all of this will shake out. But even if McCarthy manages to secure the leadership position he so desperately covets, this is likely to be just the beginning of the headaches that he would endure trying to lead this slim Republican majority in Congress. At the moment, Republicans appear to be a party that is at war with themselves, held hostage by a vocal minority of their own congressional delegation. This is an inauspicious start for Republicans, But beyond the looming questions about their capacity to lead, it's very likely you've already heard or read media appraisals of just what all of this dysfunctional nonsense says about the state of our politics in general. Now, I'll admit, all of this is pretty bizarre to watch. Last night, I I laughed to myself uh, with a bit of shock as I watched this ordinarily perfunctory vote to adjourn Congress for the evening become this moment of high drama a chaotic scene with Republicans and Democrats scrambling all over the House floor, shouting and booing. On this vote, the yeas are 200. On this vote, the yeas are 216. The nays are 214. Accordingly. But as bad as all of that looks, as embarrassing as it kind of genuinely is, I think most of this is just an aesthetic debacle. In a very real sense, the U.S. Congress was overwhelmed by chronic bipartisan dysfunction decades ago. To take just one urgent example, funding the federal government is a core congressional function, the power of the purse. But according to the Tax Policy Center, the last time Congress managed to perform this task on time was in 1997, more than 25 years ago. In fact, since 1977, Congress has managed to pass its annual funding bills on time on only four occasions. That is a half century of financial impropriety on the part of the U.S. Congress. We've become increasingly accustomed to the specter of looming federal government shutdowns. But that isn't how things are supposed to work. And while these shutdowns are frequently characterized as the fault of Republicans or Democrats, 
they're actually the result of a systemic bipartisan failure. Instead of normal spending bills, we get these nail-biting, last-minute stopgap measures that sometimes only manage to fund the federal government for another week or a month or two, just enough time for them to rubber stamp another omnibus bill, something else that they haven't read that's likely to guarantee a tremendous amount of wasted taxpayer dollars. And that conclusion isn't even remotely controversial. Just a few weeks ago, Congress passed just the latest continuing resolution, a nearly $1.7 trillion, 4,000-plus page omnibus spending bill, filled with quasi-legal new spending that will never be subjected to any real debate on the floor of Congress. In short, the brawl over Republican congressional leadership currently playing out in Congress is really a sideshow. These are the predictable antics of a fully dysfunctional legislative body, one that long ago abandoned any modicum of seriousness. We probably need to see even more open displays of just how absurd this entire institution has become. Perhaps then Americans will wake up to the importance of demanding that these people stop grandstanding and do their jobs. But that's enough about Congress, for now anyways. On today's show, we revisit some apocalyptic predictions that didn't quite pan out. From Y2K in the 90s to the overpopulation scare in the 1970s, the expert consensus seemed to support some of the most pessimistic doomsaying, but the worst case scenarios that some people imagined never materialized. Were the media and the experts wrong? Or, in the case of overpopulation, are we perhaps on the threshold of a deadly mass extinction that could threaten our collective way of life? We'll get to that. But first, we've been assured that race is just a social construct, that there are no bright lines in human biology or genetics that actually separate humans into distinct racial groups. But new research involving artificial intelligence and CT scans might be complicating some of those conclusions, or not. Today, I'll be talking to Emory University researcher Judy Gachoya about a study that she and her colleagues conducted involving medical images and artificial intelligence. Judy Gachoya is up next. We're living in a time of unprecedented medical innovations. We've mapped the human genome. We can swap out your ailing heart for someone else's. We can even develop an RNA-based vaccine to stop an out-of-control virus in a matter of months. Rapid developments in the field of artificial intelligence promise even greater breakthroughs in a range of fields, including healthcare. Judy Kachoya is an assistant professor of interventional radiology and informatics in the Department of Radiology and Imaging Science at Emory University. Judy was one of uh, a number of professionals who were doing a really interesting study examining how artificial intelligence tools um, can be used to predict a patient's race simply by looking at their medical images. Specifically, we're talking about scans that are beneath the skin uh, that are taking a look at, at a patient's lungs uh, in this particular case, and actually still able to make some determination that a patient's scan matches their self-identified race. Um, now, Judy, this is a, a finding that seems to fly in the face of some conventional wisdom, or at least some, I'd, I'd suggest, um, kind of prior beliefs, perhaps, that some people have about like, the nature of race. 
um, and racial differences and whether or not they're biological. Um, could you talk a little bit just in general about the actual finding that you made here and why it is so novel? I see that we're going to have very hard questions. <laughs> and um, so you're right. Most people, uh, this work, which was something that I honestly uh, didn't anticipate, was that they said, hey, this proves that there's something biologic in terms of race. And so actually the first thing that I describe is the way we use the ground truth is the self-reported race. And this is how other people see you and how you see yourself. And we know that maybe you're applying for a job, you go to the healthcare system, and if you've gone to the hospital, then you know that sometimes no one asks you that what your race is. You know, they just look at you and decide, you're a little dark-skinned. Let's make you this racial category. And so there's actually a big problem in how people are recorded. And who says if it's something about how you self-identify that you cannot change? Why can't you change from one racial group to another? Or what happens in mixed races that we do not, at least in the Atlanta area, we do not, our EM electronic medical record system doesn't allow us to be able to capture, you know, that you belong to two ethnicities, so you're mixed. And so um, I, I can see how our work can be easily sort of interpreted that, hey, if I can tell that Judy is of this race from her chest X-ray, from her mammogram, from her hand radiograph, because it wasn't just chest X-rays, then there's something in the biology but I have to be very clear that we do not we do not know that we have that type of information. Um, what I would say, and this is how I describe our work now, is that we see hidden signals, you know, and and that's what you, I think you are sort of envisioning that everywhere we look, then we'll find something that we didn't anticipate, and those hidden signals we do need to understand why that happens. How are you training the AI software? to to actually go about identifying people's race? Are you loading in a bunch of images to begin with and saying, you know, these images are people who are self-identifying as, you know, black or Asian or white, and then running that model against a bunch of different scans? Yes, that's a simply way to think about it. But the, the thing is that the model here is not novel. And actually, maybe the more interesting thing is to give you a, a, like, why would you even look for race on medical imaging? It was an accident for us, how we ended up working on this. We were looking at some, it was going, what was supposed to be a very quick academic project, great paper. Uh, that's what we thought. But, you know, we were going to say, look, we need more diverse data sets. If you bring more diverse data sets, we are going to fix the biases that we see in the algorithms. But what it turned out to be was, yeah, when you include more patients, then, you know, you the amplitude of bias decreases, but it doesn't go away. What I mean is that you still see the same patterns. If one condition wasn't working well for white patients, it doesn't matter how many more white patients you put in, then you still see that same pattern persisting. So in that curiosity phase where we started to go back and explore, okay, let's figure out why are these models doing this? 
you know, we thought it's the model, you know, we were, we were pretty much using like, you know, like dense net uh, architecture. And by the, maybe like the third or fourth epoch, the model has already learned, you know, their accuracies in the, you know, 90s percent. And the other thing is, we also have noticed that when we perturb the images, honestly, that's one of the bigger takeaways. It's not bad. If I see you on the streets, I'll say, I think you are African-American. You know, you will say the same of me. It's not bad, uh, you know, that people can see who you are. And, you know, most of us are actually very proud of our, you know, ethnicities and and groupings. But what I would say is that when you perturb the images, so for example, if I start to change your appearance by applying 50 TikTok filters, and at the end of the day, you can still say, I still think you're, you're, you're black. When the image is just like noisy and just like a grayscale, for me, that's even more concerning, more than the, you know, um, just the, the original images, even if that's also surprising because as radiologists, we're not able to tell that, we cannot tell that this is the race of the patient. I think it's worthwhile to talk a little bit about how this is supposed to work because there is software employed in radiology screenings today. You go into the hospital, you get a CT scan. Um, what, what typically happens, as I understand it, is it gets shot off to uh, a radiologist somewhere to take a look at this scan. And they're using this computer-aided um, detection software to figure out whether or not there needs to be some sort of further examination or if there is the presence of some sort of abnormality that might suggest that you have a medical condition that that needs further attention. So there's a sense in which this is already happening. So I've got kind of two questions starting from that premise. One, to the extent this is already happening, are we already seeing bias um, with respect to our ability to accurately diagnose patients from their scans? And does that bias seem to correspond to a patient's race? Okay. So the first sort of preamble for this is that are we, how much, you know, how much are we using AI for actual medical decision making? And it's actually increasing, especially in the area of triage. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you have a, you know, a work list that has a hundred scans, then uh, and maybe one patient there has an intracranial bleed, which is, you know, life emergency. And if you're just sequentially reinterpreting those studies as a radiologist in the order that they came through, then you could really delay care. And so we see this triage uh, algorithms, especially around stroke care, uh, you know, clots in the pulmonary arteries that say, hey, I see a clot here or I see this patient has a stroke send it to the person who's going to intervene. And so it's bypassing even the radiologist in some cases and sending it to the, to an, to the doctor who's responsible for intervention to shorten the time for, let's say, you know, time to removing or revascularization, you know, just like the time components of a, of a heart attack or something like that. And so we see that the, the reality, honestly, is that we've not evaluated these models specifically for bias. So I don't, we really honestly don't know, like for the stroke algorithm that we use, does it work better for whites or does it work better for blacks? We do mm-hmm. not know that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I think uh, it, it seems that there's been a particular interest, a very acute interest in questions of, kind of equity and fairness and health um, and finding and identifying bias and addressing it in different ways mm-hmm. since kind of the summer of 2020. And I've seen at least a bit of a potential tension with 
um, in that it's possible to address ourselves to disparities between racial groups. But it seems to me that there might be costs associated with trying to do that. And I do think there have been some studies. I know there was one, um, the title of which was Improving the Fairness of Chest X-Ray Classifiers, that seemed to suggest that some attempts to mitigate against the possibility of of uh, kind of this perceived bias or potential bias with respect to to race in scans might actually make our ability to utilize these scans to generally help detect whether or not someone ha- is suffering from some sort of illness or get accurate readings that overall the models suffer and become less useful. And that seems like a real risk that I don't hear many people talking about. Is that something that you've given any consideration to or that that in the field people are generally talking about? So one of the big tension is that fair models are less accurate. And so if you look at some of the mitigation strategies that happen is, for example, adversarial debiasing. And the way that works is it penalizes a model for learning a protected attribute. And in this case, it's mm. saying, uh, you know, if you learn that A is black, I'm going to penalize you. But what we've observed is that when you use some of those strategies is that the, like the mod, the accuracy is okay for everyone. And so you're not saying that to improve the accuracy of black patients, you have to reduce the accuracy of white patients. Because I think when it's presented, or at least the previous thought was that there's no way that you can improve the accuracy of black patients unless you take away from something else. But that's not the reality. You can maintain the performance of the best performing class and improve the performance of the lower performing class by this newer sort of techniques. And this is an area that actually honestly requires a lot more work. The other way to think about it, and this is a new debate, is to say, why do I need one algorithm that works for everyone? Maybe if my population has, you know, like in Atlanta where we have equal populations of blacks and whites, Maybe what we need are two models, that one model is for black patients. And I know that when you say that, it sounds really terrible. Mm -hmm. And the other model is for white patients. So it's almost like you're building a biased model, but knowing that you're going to deploy it for this one group to maximize the opportunity to get treatment. And, you know, I I noticed that my view on this changed because uh, one of, I was, uh, someone was interviewing me and they, they posed a clinical scenario for me. They said, Judy, you're in charge of a HIV clinic that has poor, poor compliance. And um, I tell you that I've built an AI model that actually improves you know, people who come back and get pre-exposure prophylaxis. But mm-hmm. unfortunately, this model does not perform well for women. And you know what I said? I said I would deploy it. Because if overall my HIV adherence, my clinic is so terrible, right. then any person that I improve... For me, it, it, it's okay. And especially if this one person, if they get prepped, then they're protecting another person who I'm not seeing. And what I would say is that it's this essence of deployment, but understanding that we have to also invest a similar amount of money and resources to figure out, oh, why are the women not coming to clinic? Right. So yes, if you know, it's because most of us are... We, we're not really homogeneous in terms of, um, you know, let's say we all identify as black. I mean, black is so varied. But isn't, isn't there something to be said for the fact that, you know, as, as we mentioned, since 2020, since the racial reckoning, 
Mm-hmm. Race has become of central importance to so many industries, um, certainly to the healthcare industry broadly, but to, to so many industries. Because I'm, I have this perspective from outside of academia and outside of the medical profession, just as a journalist, kind of seeing the same sort of dynamics play out with stories that are hyper focused on race. But oftentimes seem to miss like the big the big picture, the substantive issue. When a white patient comes in and they're sick, you know, that's their pro- that's the number one problem for them, that they're sick, not that they're white. And the same is true for a black patient. And just being able to to acknowledge certain concerns that exist and other political ra- realities that might exist, but also focus specifically and narrowly on health outcomes, health outcomes, health outcomes for everyone, improving our efficiency overall seems like the most important thing. And you know what you're describing with the new challenges that are likely to emerge because of what AI could potentially do and some of the ways it could be misused um, with respect to underwriting or various other things, it doesn't really seem like we're doing enough to prepare for that broadly while we're very narrowly focused on some of these equity issues. Yes. So the thing that has, you know, towards the end of last year was frustrating me. I was like, okay, you look everywhere, there's bias. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to be discussing this this week when we, we, you know, we had a live game showing cardiac arrest, you know, mm-hmm. and it turns out that, oh, if you're black, it doesn't matter your neighborhood. If you have cardiac arrest, you're less likely to get resuscitated, which then translates that few, maybe the AI algorithms, you're tr- you know, we're training for cardiac care misses people, black patients who died in the field who did not get resuscitated because there's bias there. And you know what I was like, there's bias everywhere. And I wondered, are we going to get apathy where we are like, yeah, we know it doesn't work, you know, and, or, oh yeah, we don't, you know, this type of apathy instead of thinking like, okay, what's the so what, what can change? And one example as I was, you know, taking care of a patient yesterday, I was looking through the chart and I saw, you know, the the GFR. It's a calculation for renal function, the glomerular filtration rate, which is probably one of the first thing that that sparked all this, you know, like, oh, it's biased. We calculate it differently for blacks. It's because they're bigger. And maybe there is some signal that our renal function is different if you have bigger body mass or something like that. And it's changed. This is one thing that actually has changed the results, if you looked at the results maybe three years ago versus the results, your results today in the, in the electronic medical record, it's re- reported different and saying this is not race specific, you know, because, uh, you know, there's so much shaming around GFR for African-Americans and non-African-Americans. Uh, and if you look at something like this, how, how has that even translated to helping me change my my practice, you know, like how do I understand it or do I interpret it differently? And so I think that there's also a lot of hype. If you look at the amount of funding uh, as researchers, even people who I know that I had a little bit of moral injury in this were people who I know could don't care about, you know, uh, disparities and uh, were now dipping their toe here and being the biggest champions. Just the same thing you said, it's become the hottest thing to work on. And so, mm-hmm. Uh, I, I just don't know how to refocus or where this type of dialogue goes, you know, to say, hey, maybe this is how we mitigate or fix uh, some of these issues that we are facing. Yeah. 
No, I mean, what you're describing sounds a lot like the the kind of dream of very personalized medicine, um, which exactly. is what genetics was always supposed to open the door to all along. And the hope would be that you have, you know, the genome decoded and you've got these AI models that mm-hmm. are able to do all sorts of sophisticated pattern matching that is so sophisticated. And I think this, this, this is something we should underscore here. It, you all are trained radiologists. You're l- having trained radiologists look at these same scans. You still, as I understand it, haven't figured out how the AI model is actually able to do this matching. It is finding things in the scans that you know experts looking at these scans simply cannot detect. And it's been many moons since you actually started running these algorithms, right? Absolutely, yes. Yeah, that's extraordinary. Um, I, there's something you said a moment ago about using different models for different groups that really stood out to me. And like, I wonder if an AI model might actually be able to, if it's fed that information, if you train the model in that way and showed a bunch of scans and say, this is an athlete, this is you know uh, someone who works in an office all day long, if the model might not actually be able to do that sort of pattern recognition at a kind of similarly high level of efficiency and quality? I will tell you that this is what's most concerning. So subsequently, a group in Sanford said, hey, let's look at uh, cost of care. I'm going to just feed you chest x-rays and you tell me what's the one year and three year cost of care. Hmm. And what they show is that they're looking at the chest x-ray and it says, this patient is going to incur this amount of money. Wow. I mean, just think about it. Like, exactly. How, how, how are we able to tell something like this, which is even more concerning? And then even more concerning to that is we also looked that you could tie it to the area deprivation index. So the area deprivation index and the social deprivation index, right? They mm-hmm. use the most granular, you know, level of geography that tells you, hey, in this area, these are the number of people who've gone to high school. This is the number of people, the nearest shopping center, the nearest, you know, how many people died from here, how many mm-hmm. people were employed, what's the average income? You can tie that to the patient's x-ray and it can predict it. So I said you could tell the race of the patient, you could tell where they live, you could wow. tell their disease condition, you could tell their healthcare cost. And lastly, this is the work that was done by cardiologists that was saying, could you predict the biologic age? So you can tell the Judy's black, lives in a poor neighborhood, wow. has probably congestive heart failure, and is older by 20 years. When you combine all these things, they are hidden. We cannot explain why the models have this ability, and they pro- most of these are above you know, AUCs of 0.75. And if you start to do this, what we're seeing is that people are starting companies to do underwriting to help insurance decide what coverage am I going to tell you? So it's not just that, yes, we, we, we are identifying these hidden signals, but we, we need to be even more aggressive to catch up mm-hmm. so that we can say, okay, we see this is a problem. This, you know, um, can we mitigate this or understand how it's used? Again, to the same example I went back to tell you, understanding when can you not use it? Because for me, even as someone who's a practitioner of this area, I'm a little baffled. So I've moved on from, hey, yeah, this is, you know, the uh, the race. And what I want to emphasize that this is just one artifact. And if we look at the current work, there are many things that are hiding in plain sight. And we need to figure out, is it the systemic racism that these models are able to pick because that's how we group people? 
or is it something else? It's confounding. Um, it is it is marvelously complicated um, in sort of the best and worst senses of the word. Judy, thank you so much for, for your time and for your work. And I do hope we have an opportunity to talk again. Awesome. Thank you so much. And now, the spiel. This past weekend, CBS's long-running news program 60 Minutes featured an apocalyptic segment warning viewers that humanity was on the precipice of a devastating and self-induced mass extinction event. The scientists you're about to meet say the Earth is suffering a crisis of mass extinction on a scale unseen since the dinosaurs. The ominous piece combined dire predictions about everything from climate change to overconsumption to the ongoing and purportedly unprecedented disappearance of numerous animal species and perhaps most controversially, the perils of overpopulation. While every one of these issues warrants serious consideration and discussion, what sparked the most controversy since the segment was broadcast was the program's decision to include Paul Ehrlich, a now 90-year-old Stanford biologist who is perhaps best known for his 1968 book, The Population Bomb. I and the vast majority of my colleagues think we're, we've had it, that the next few decades will be the end of the kind of civilization we're used to. Ehrlich was at the forefront of a prominent and influential global movement to draw attention to what he believed were the imminent risks of overpopulation. And throughout the 1970s, he told a simple and seemingly persuasive story. In his own words, we have a finite system with finite resources, and we can't have infinite population growth. Ehrlich had the ear of policymakers. His dire predictions were featured in countless news stories. And he was a fixture in popular culture, by his own account making as many as 20 appearances on The Tonight Show. But importantly... Ehrlich's dire predictions of mass famine, the collapse of the United Kingdom, and much else besides, ultimately turned out to be decidedly wrong. Around the same time Ehrlich was popularizing his concerns, a global revolution in agriculture was taking place, widely known as the Green Revolution. Ehrlich didn't predict that this revolution in farming would make abundant food production both cheap and affordable. But fast forward to today. The story recently produced by 60 Minutes includes Ehrlich alongside a number of new authoritative voices, researchers who share his persistent, if somewhat refurbished, conclusions about imminent ecological catastrophe. It also includes emotional profiles of everyday people impacted by overfishing and other very tangible environmental challenges. And I must add that 60 Minutes did manage to include an acknowledgement about Ehrlich's earlier failed predictions. He was wrong about that. The Green Revolution fed the world. Which they buttressed by suggesting that perhaps he was just early, not exactly wrong. But he also wrote in 68 that heat from greenhouse gases would melt polar ice and humanity would overwhelm the wild. But you know what was conspicuously absent from this news story? Any expert perspective that meaningfully disagreed with the dire assessment that was being presented to viewers. Look, maybe Ehrlich and his associates are right this time. Perhaps disaster is just around the corner. But what if they're wrong? Being wrong isn't the worst thing in the world. 
It doesn't suggest that no one should ever listen to you again. But fallibility is a tangible fact, and predictions of this sort, even the ones that may be widely popular amongst experts and media professionals and the cultural class, have turned out to be wrong in the past. And I'm not just referring to Ehrlich's here. It's worth remembering the Y2K crisis, an event that was covered by the folks at 60 Minutes as well in real time back in 1998. In the late 1990s, there was a tremendous amount of concern that when clocks struck midnight on January 1st, 2000, that many computers all across the world would simply stop working, that power plants would fail, that planes would fall from the skies, that financial companies would no longer work, perhaps that nuclear weapons would be unleashed from their silos. What are we doing on New Year's Eve? We'll be hiding somewhere. Chill with the family in case the world ends or something. But it turns out that much of the extraordinary expense incurred trying to avert the Y2K calamity was probably wasted. There are numerous countries that spent no money whatsoever and did virtually no preparation and did not seem to suffer any grave consequences. And there are those who suggest that, well, some of this spending probably averted the disaster for those countries, and some of that spending likely led to patches being developed by Microsoft and other companies that were simply proliferated to everyone, which, again, averted the disaster. But subsequent research has suggested that there are likely plenty of instances where there was a dramatic overstatement about the number of systems and the pieces of software that were likely to have been impacted by the Y2K bug in any event. Tempering media coverage of the Y2K crisis with some moderate voices would have been worthwhile during the Y2K crisis. It certainly would have been worthwhile during the entire episode of the overpopulation panic in the 1970s. And I have no doubt that 60 Minutes, its audience, and yes, even people expressing concern about the possibility of a mass extinction would be well served by thoughtfully addressing their critics in public. It is not sufficient to suggest that anyone expressing doubts about these dire predictions, that anyone who is aware of the many prominent failures of these kinds of Armageddon-like predictions in the past, is somehow a monstrous conservative, someone who is denying climate change or isn't interested in the science. No, they might just be someone like me, who acknowledges that fallibility is part of the scientific enterprise that the scientific enterprise involves getting it both right and wrong, that it involves copious amounts of uncertainty. And dealing with that uncertainty is important. And you deal with it by acknowledging it. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara is the producer for The Gist. Joel Patterson is the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is the COO of Peach Fish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. I'm Camille Foster, sitting in for the globe trotting and hopefully tanned Mike Pesca. Thanks for listening. <laughs>